0: Welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Emily, and I
1: use pronouns like they, them, theirs. And I'm Pastor Kay, and my pronouns are she, her.
2: And I am JM, and my pronouns are they and them.
1: In this episode, we'll discuss the third Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Proper 8 or Lectionary 13, which this year falls on June 26th. We have one content note for you this episode. Uh, During the deep dive, we discuss houselessness, arrest, and domestic violence.
0: Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we
1: make in this episode. So today, for our deep dive into homelessness, we have Reverend J.M. Longworth, who is a Minister of Word and Sacrament serving on the leadership team of Release Faith Community and a life-professed sibling in the Order of Ecumenical Franciscans. They are a grant writer and foundation specialist for Vermont's largest organization serving people experiencing and at risk of homelessness, and they believe deeply that housing is a human right and that everyone is entitled to trauma-informed healing and spiritual care. Welcome! We are so glad to have you with us.
2: It's a pleasure to be here today.
0: So, Jam, you have done a lot of work with folks who are houseless and those who want, for any number of reasons, to help them. I'm curious what that has been like for you, because you've done it in a few different capacities.
2: Yeah, I'd say that uh, it's been pretty transformative in both my own life and my sense of what ministry and mission looks like, and it certainly has opened a lot of windows towards uh, understanding how to approach people in ways that really deeply honors who they are, their sense of space, the sense of home that they create, uh, even if they're not living in a house. And uh, beyond that, I've been able to see how really taking small steps with a, with a handful of dedicated people can make a big difference in terms of community impact Both the mission work that I did in the city of Rutland, Vermont, as well as the organization that I work for now, both began as small committees of volunteers, people who were just really worried about what was happening with their neighbors, primarily under dangerous winter weather conditions, because that's when I think folks become particularly aware when it's 30 below outside and they have a safe place to go to sleep. Regardless of the choice matrix that people go through to decide where and when to sleep in a given day, when it's that cold and it's life-threatening to still be outside, I think a lot of people's attention is drawn to that. That being said, this is an issue that pervades pretty much every community uh, across the entire country and is something where there are people who are living outside for a wide variety of reasons. Um, And then on top of that, there's a whole category of folks that are kind of hidden. Every year, every state conducts what's called a point in time count. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, it's rigged no matter which way you look at it. Uh, In most states where it's cold in the winter, uh, it's done sometime in the middle of January. So it's one night in the middle of January. They count up people who are staying in shelters, people who are staying in uh, motels where they're being specifically sheltered through a state program, right? So if you've just managed to come across seventy-five dollars and have bought your own hotel room, those folks aren't counted. And then, of course, uh, anyone who is staying either outside or in—the term HUD uses—is uh, a structure unfit for human habitation, right? So if you're sleeping in the sure. cow barn at the fairground or in the basement of the abandoned dress factory, you might be inside, but that's not really—that's not housing. Yeah. What's not included in all that though, are the countless households, both families and individuals who are in danger of losing their housing in the near future. Uh, It does not count households that are over occupied, right? So if you have one apartment that is really designed for say three people, but there are 10 people living there, the extra seven people don't get counted in any sort of count for houselessness or homelessness. And so there's, there's a lot of folks whether it's couch surfing or overoccupying family homes that also are having housing instability, but aren't included in all of these stats that are collected. Um, and I did, I, I did have to do a little bit of research and it turns out it is true. It began as a joke on the uh, uh, television show, Mr. Mayor, that's where I, where I heard it, that in Los Angeles where it doesn't get cold, mm-hmm. they do the point in time count on the night of the Oscars because all of these people have been removed from the street to make way for the Oscar celebration. And so it drives, it drives down the point in time count to count who's sleeping outside when, when authorities have come through and swept the streets.
0: Oh yeah. So speaking of that, there has been a trend, especially more recently to criminalize homelessness. And it's part of a trend of antagonistic policies geared towards folks living in poverty. And that's like, inhospitable benches and sidewalks destruction of homeless camps um, fines and jail for sleeping in public among other things i'm curious what you make of this and what kind of what what do we do with that when it's so like like that the oscar thing where it's like
1: so obvious Mm -hmm. it's a feature not a bug right right yeah
2: so In some sense, while there may be escalating trends in terms of of local public policy and in terms of environmental design, if you've ever looked, for example, under an alcove in a strip mall and thought to yourself, wow, why are all those weird cement spikes on the ground there? Well, it's because you can't sleep on cement spikes unless you, you know, have some very particularly, you know, aesthetic kind of <laughs> spiritual practice. Uh, but the whole point of that environmental design is to make it hard for someone to use that alcove as a safe place to rest, either sitting down or to sleep. Mm-hmm. That being said, vagrancy laws have been in effect throughout the, uh, the country's history, especially in cities. There's often been an attempt to regulate homelessness or not having a house to go to by simply exiting people from public spaces. right? And so rather than resolving any root causes, there's just been a desire to not see it. Um, some of this goes as far back as uh, laws in England in the 1630s. Um, some of the early poor laws uh, actually created the classes of poverty that we are still using on some level in public discourse today. Right. So it divided those folks who were poor into deserving poor Mm -hmm. and undeserving poor. Mm
0: -hmm. Deserving
2: poor folks got access to things like workhouses and the ability to go into essentially workfare type programs uh, where they could begin earning money. And presumably at some point they would work their way into the industrial factory system and, and be off of the public system. Whereas the undeserving poor were often either ignored completely or crammed into profoundly unsanitary warehouses for people because of the thought that either as a result of mental health conditions, addiction, a lot of the same drivers that we see today, uh, violence, uh, history of maladaptive coping mechanisms, which is a euphemism for you know people who don't get along with others, mm-hmm. that... Yeah. Folks were often either swept away or contained in sort of these warehouse spaces. So, unfortunately, while there may be some escalating trends at the moment, the concepts are—they're unf- hundreds of years old. Mm. Okay.
1: And come to think of it, I recognized one of those phrases from a quote from Dorothy Day that I would imagine you've heard before. Uh, the gospel has taken away forever my right to discern between the deserving and the undeserving poor. Something like right. that.
2: Right. Right. And so, yeah, Dorothy's yeah. she's she's directly referencing this social work concept and saying that the gospel obliterates it.
1: Right. Yeah. I love using that line in sermons. It tends to really knock people's socks off. Mm. Um, I may have also paraphrased it somewhat. I haven't heard it for a while, but. Also, I notice as we talk about this, uh, we have all used, I think, both terms by now. Uh, Some activists have started using the term uh, houseless or houselessness as opposed to homeless. And I was wondering, uh, can you tell us what that language choice is about?
2: Sure. Um, Well, the easy one to explain is the phrase homeless is a category established in federal law by the Housing and Urban Development uh, agency. So that's that's where that language comes from. Um, mm-hmm. And to be honest, it references a social preference for home ownership as a sign of successful citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I think that really that's, that goes right back to the roots of the country when originally only landowners were allowed to participate in the government. Yeah. Uh, and so so yeah. that's a throwback to that. So having a house AKA a home, especially one that you own, is a sign of real full citizenship, even though voting laws are no longer restricted in that way. Um, When it comes to the concept of houselessness, uh, that's intended to identify that oftentimes, especially if people have been rough sleeping for a very long time, They probably have some of the concepts of chosen family and community. They have community spaces. Uh, During my time as a street chaplain, where I would be out walking anywhere from 8 to 10 miles uh, in a day, visiting with people, um, visiting both neighborhoods as well as places where people created uh, alternative social spaces and places to sleep, Mm -hmm. it was really clear that there was an entire network of footpaths that was overlaid over the city map, right? So if you look at a city map or you look at Google maps, there's the streets and there's the sidewalks and there's the rivers and everything. Mm -hmm. And if you could, there'd be another map you could lay on top of that, that was encampments, agreed upon social spaces of territory that various people were using to store their items, uh, places where people slept outside. and so. The whole point of using houselessness is to identify that people may in fact have a sense of home, sure. even though they don't have a house or an apartment. And the challenge in that is that there are certainly are people who have experience of home when they are unhoused. And for mm-hmm. other folks, it's a traumatic crisis, right? And so I think that there's some value in in being able to embrace both terms. One, because I think there's there's value in seeing that people have created spaces and places that are home, even though they're not the kinds of structures that we would think of as, uh, according to the you know guidelines, fit for human habitation. Yeah. And at the same time, there are people who are going through the loss of housing that has left them reeling. And so I think that both ends up being important. The concept of, of outdoor space as home, one of the things we would do as street chaplains uh, when we would begin training new folks to um, head out and visit, would be to try to conceptualize a certain area as a space in someone's home so that we would follow this knock-first rule, you know, and obviously there's a lot of cases not really a door, but to do a slow and steady announcement of ourselves, who we are, who we're with, to take away the anxiety that we're not the police, we're not social services, you know, but we are here to just check and see if anyone's here, if they're okay, so that there could be gradual consent, throughout the entire experience um, on the part of whoever was staying there. Um, And, you know, I just would explain it to the volunteers and the other folks that I was training that if one day you just walked into your kitchen to, you know, go make coffee in the morning and there was just someone sitting there in your kitchen that you didn't know, you'd probably be rightfully freaked out. So, (laughs) you know, so we don't want to recreate that experience for any of our friends that we're encountering outside because, that's just not fair to do to anybody. Yeah. And so we would we would try to honor the sense of home that some folks had created around those spaces while at the same time using all sorts of different kinds of communication to make sure that people could uh, say yes to our presence. And at the same time, if they said no, we said, thanks, have a great day, and we kept going. Sure,
1: yeah.
2: So I've been involved both in the launch of a day center and then also where I'm serving now um, has a very well-established day center, Um, That is open both to guests of their own shelters, but also just to anybody that's 18 and up that wants to come in and need space. And the reason why we have that cutoff is that that's meant for both the safety of the adults in the space, but also the safety of any youth. We actually have a really wonderful partner in the city that is um, a youth shelter and a youth drop-in program uh, where there are adults there who are especially trained on how to help make that a safe space for unaccompanied minors who are living on their own. So in both of those cases, one of, the, one of the important functions of the day center, aside from socialization and a place to do meals and a place to get a nap if you actually worked all night, that was an interesting thing I had never thought of until I talked to someone uh, who was finishing up uh, their nap in the nap room, was that here was someone who had no place to live and was not eligible to check in the traditional overnight shelter because the hours were the same hours that they worked.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. And so
2: you think about what does it mean to work overnight, not have shelter and then have nowhere to go to rest. No one could no one could keep that up for very long. You you become either very ill or have an episode. Right. Mhm. I said those spaces often served as the as the mailing address for a lot of the guests including people who didn't want to use a shelter that they were staying at as an address. Um, and then folks that either didn't have access to shelter or were precariously housed, right? So they're staying on a friend's couch or sleeping in somebody's garage or somebody's storage unit. They could use that as, a, as a, a legally findable, reliable address for all sorts of correspondence and other things like that.
0: Yeah. Right. Which is really important. I think in some places, depending on like geographically where you are, there are different places that emphasize daytime, right? Like In Arizona, I was at a conference in Arizona and we were talking about houselessness there and the emphasis there is on cooling shelters in the summer during the daytime versus Vermont where it's making sure there's shelter in wintertime when it's really bad weather. Not that those are exclusive, but just like the different emphases when in reality, like what what we do need is this sort of a system that you're talking about where there are shelters that are available and I think there's a lot of rightful criti- criticism about different shelter programs in terms of like how safe they actually right. make people mm-hmm. and also having somewhere to go in the daytime, especially with attacks on libraries, because a lot of libraries are actually places where people can go, maybe not for a nap, but can go to hang out, can go to get resources, that sort of thing too.
2: It's, it's one of the few truly public spaces left that you don't yeah. have to pay to exist in.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Although theoretically wouldn't it be nice if churches functioned that way too?
2: Well, and that's, you know, that's part of I think that there's an opportunity for churches and faith communities to participate in a significant way if they do some homework and understand what's in their neighborhood already. Right, because uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got from someone who ran a very substantial set of social services um, in uh, in Augusta, Maine, in the capital of Maine, was that um, make sure you've used up all your resources first before you go and open a. <laughs> you know, and in this case, yep. the, my original question was about a neighborhood free restaurant, but but basically, sort of saying when you when you launch something brand new, the levels of scrutiny. I mean, are through the roof. So, so make sure you have every, every church kitchen, every neighborhood center, every everything. If, once you've tapped out all the available resources in your community, um, that becomes the time to gather together and say, hey, we're doing everything we can, but we need more capacity. So I talked a little bit about street chaplaincy. That was the first thing that we did to connect more closely with our neighbors. And that got a lot of uh, volunteers from different faith communities and uh, social organizations putting together care kits um, that we could use both just to provide basic care uh, to the folks that we met and to leave uh, care bags in places where we knew people were hanging out. But also so that we could provide information later down the road of other stuff that was going on right? Um, Mm -hmm. Tipping people off. Here's where you can find a meal. Here's where you can get a bed for tonight. Here's the phone number for economic services if you think you might qualify for a motel stay. Uh, So that was the first thing that we did. But listening carefully to the guests that we were visiting with outside, we started to realize that the capacity had diminished in the community for free meals. So Mm we worked together with some of our guests to create a free meal inside a church building. And there was just this wonderful potluck spirit about it. We'd have kitchen captains and uh, different people making all kinds of contributions to the dinner. And the most unique and wonderful version of this was in March of 2020. I don't know if mm-hmm. y'all remember what happened that month. <laughs>
0: uh-huh.
2: Like the world ended, right? Yeah. 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 I I was so distressed because I had, because I had um, one text message after another letting me know, all of these community services and community meals that were shutting down for the foreseeable future till it got to the point where there was going to be no free food in the last week of March anywhere in the city. Right. And so I went online and I begged some money from some friends and I took a little bit of money from a discretionary account. We pooled that all together and I went to a pizza place that had a drive through So it was still open. And I bought as much pizza as could fit in my car. Now, have you ever driven home with a like a nice pizza in the car? You're like, oh, (laughs) you know, the smell is great. You're getting excited about when it gets up to 75 pies all in the same car, (laughs) and like the windows are steaming up, and you just smell like garlic for days. It's pretty special. But
0: I love the smell of garlic, so that sounds amazing.
2: We pulled into yeah, just pulled into the parking lot at uh, at the location where our dinner was usually served. Popped the trunk. And just started passing out free food. Uh, and so the pandemic pizza party was like one of my favorite moments in the life of that of that <laughs> community dinner because there we just were so afraid, right? And wanted to do some we wanted to do the right thing, but also wanted to make it as safe as possible. So it's like, here's some food that was, you know, cooked in an oven, went straight in a box, and I'm not touching it either. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that was a way for us to do that. And then that evolved into a partnership with a local organization called Everyone Eats which I think originally was planned as a way to rescue all our local restaurants while they were shut down. But so many of the restaurants and um, catering services and other groups that had really seen a massive drop off in their business kept participating because it was a way for them to do what they loved make food and get paid. And then all of those extra restaurant meals became part of the supplies that we could pass out. It wasn't until after a lot of these other things had happened that we had an established day center. So that was the last piece of that, of that puzzle And I'll be honest, the day center operated under some pretty strict rules during the most tight of the pandemic shutdown, just because it was really not clear what was safe in terms of having people close together. Right. So, and, uh, you know, COVID is still a reality that we deal with, even in a much more established sheltering organization. There are times where all of a sudden a family needs to be moved to an isolation space, a guest needs to be moved to an isolation space. The day center needs to be restricted just to overnight guests. Fortunately, those are getting fewer and further apart, which is great mm, because. because we've been able to have a really, really wonderful opportunity to encourage people to do testing and get vaccinated. And so we have a, an outsized population of vaccinated folks that are living way on the margins because of the relationships that we've built, which I think is a really exciting thing.
0: Well, and it's, it's a testament to actually, like, not only living out your values in terms of, clearly folks involved have very clear stated values, like you have, of housing as a right, but also of, like, human dignity and trauma-informed work. Like, as you've been talking, you've named things that aren't always late. Like, trauma-informed is, is not in mainstream, I don't think, very well-defined. And so a lot of people will, like, say something is trauma-informed whether or not they've had training. Or sometimes people will identify someone else as being trauma-informed even when that person doesn't have the training. But you're identifying specific things, right? Like, not just barging into someone's space if they say they don't want to talk to you, moving on. But that sort of relationship-building that then creates communities of resilience, And that's the that's the piece that we don't have by and large in this country. We don't have communities of resilience. We have isolated pockets of people who are doing their best, and we live in like a you know late stage capitalist hellscape. And so like we just it's it's without the community focus, we don't actually build the communities of resistance and resilience. We just slowly dwindle until
2: yeah. Well, and I want to save part of this comment for later, but one of the things I'm really excited about is that um, we make really incredible use of peer supporters in our work, and peer supporters are part of a trauma-informed design because it's allowing people who have gone through incredibly difficult and traumatic things Uh, Whether that's mental health recovery, addiction recovery, they've been houseless themselves, maybe all three, they've had some major losses as a result of those experiences, have now arrived at a point where not only can they treat those things gently within themselves, but that because they've learned that gentle touch with themselves, that they can also then be a support and an encouragement to someone else. And it comes across very differently when someone says, yeah, well, you know, like the good sandwiches are at this place over here on King Street, because that's where I used to go for lunch, Uh, as opposed to, you know, a clinician or a social worker saying, you know, you really ought to eat some lunch, (laughs) you know, both probably coming from the same, you know, good heart space, right? Like if this person doesn't eat, they're not going to be okay, but it's just different when you can bring to bear the uh ex- life experiences that have similar echoes and yet that person has been able to be resilient in the face of those things yeah,
0: yeah. there's a literal having walked in those shoes or, mm-hmm. Yeah. right now in terms of finances especially particularly given the pandemic but we were well on our way in this direction before the pandemic far too many people are on the brink of houselessness and you kind of talked about that folks who are maybe like housing insecure, Mm -hmm. where they're staying with friends, couch surfing, or they're buried in debt, or for any number of reasons, financially insecure, they haven't gotten a raise since cost of living has skyrocketed. What do you think is going on with that?
2: Sure. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into all of the increased cost of living. And some of it honestly is the vast sums of rescue money that have gone into the system, which were essential right? We went through a crisis of epic proportions. Rescue dollars of epic proportions was the appropriate response. And yet in some communities, we find ourselves in a place where there are more assistance dollars available than there are resources you can acquire with them. For example, in in Chittenden County, Vermont, the housing market is hovering around 0.9% vacancy. Now, just for, just for comparison's sake, uh, uh, what's considered a healthy housing market has roughly 5 to 6% vacancy of all rental units at any given time, right? And that's reflecting a natural flow of people choosing different housing voluntarily, moving completely out of the area, folks moving into the area, new units coming online. Um, so that 5 to 6% buffers is healthy and normal. Below that, it's considered squeezed. Above that, you're starting to get into situations where um, you may actually have neighborhoods that are abandoned Mm. because there's so little occupancy um, that, you know, it's probably headed in the direction of a discarded space.
1: Mm. Now, as you talk about that, does that take into account? places that are owned but are not being rented out and are not inhabited like maybe someone is just waiting to make a profit off the property uh, as that's something that we've been hearing more and more about lately No see that's vacancy
2: rates do not include um, single family homes that are owned by a single family owner even if it's not say it's a vacation home right. Or something that somebody sure. has acquired. So when a uh, building 47th Airbnb, right. That's so let's, let's say just for, just for sake of example, there's um, a three-story home that in New England, they call them triple deckers, right? So there's three-story home. That's three separate apartments, one, two, three, one on each floor that if that were owned and rented long-term as apartments, then the status of those three apartments would be included in the vacancy rates. If a new owner bought the whole building and turned all three of them into Airbnbs or other sorts of short-term rentals, they would essentially vanish from the housing stock. Mm -hmm. And so there's a whole other issue too that um, often gets overlooked, which is that there can be a real knock-on effect depending on what's missing in a particular area. Some communities desperately need more safe and affordable senior living situations, so that includes assisted sure. living and independent living and even some some other more intensive forms of safe places for seniors to live and so when those don't exist especially when they don't exist in an affordable way seniors who are homeowners and oftentimes have paid off those homes stay in them when they stay in them it makes it harder for there to be enough housing stock available for new home buyers. Because oftentimes the kind of homes that new home buyers would buy would be the sort of things that these folks are vacating when they move to an assisted living or other safe senior living. Those Mm -hmm. home buyers buy those things, which means that those home buyers don't rent, right? That frees up the top tier apartments that they would have rented, which allows folks that are in um, less expensive apartments that are maybe looking for more living space, but aren't ready to buy a home to move up, the property ladder, which then frees up lower cost apartments for folks that are really desperate and struggling and potentially can help reset the whole, the whole thing. So it's not just a matter of enough. It's a matter of enough of the right thing, right? If we put up tons and tons of housing and it's all only of one class or it's all only one kind, then that, that actually doesn't help the problem. Yeah.
1: A neighborhood of 47 McMansions is not actually going to solve your community's issue of affordable housing. No, it's not. How <laughs> <That's> strange. <Yeah. laughs> but they'll all be beige together. There you
2: go. Nor are endless towers of apartments or condos that are really designed to be owned um, or that are rented out at what's called, you know, luxury rate, which is well above fair market value.
0: Yeah, right. there's a lot of evidence to around, like development of apartment buildings that actually mixed income neighborhoods and apartment buildings are the best model because i mean diversity is pretty much always the better option in any number of ways but it also like allows for it to not be monoliths isolated in a space and yeah
2: yeah oh absolutely and it helps cut down on on certain sorts of um, lopsided educational funding and over-policing mm-hmm. in certain neighborhoods based on uh, race or, or class. There's a lot of reasons why mixed neighborhoods are better.
0: So you've, you've talked about a lot of different, like the systemic stuff and the getting involved in trying to make sure that people have access to shelter and and their needs. So I'm curious, there's also been like talk in the last maybe decade about like toxic charity which is like a whole other thing that yeah, yeah it's a whole thing that could be a deep dive on its own mm-hmm. um, but i'm curious how you see or experience the intersections of charity and justice and solidarity in terms of addressing houselessness because like when i've encountered people there's a way that there's like progressions that are possible but also like what are the things that are actually needed i don't know i'm curious yeah
2: I I think that some of the... It's really interesting. The boundaries around toxic charity are very similar to the kinds of boundaries that one wants to maintain in a trauma-informed relationship, right? And so... When there is a lack of consent and participation on the part of the recipients, when there is a lack of consultation about people's needs and the specific sorts of activities that they would like to see developed so that they could develop it together in community when there is a presumption about who needs what resources and for what purpose and folks are not allowed to to drive the experience through their own experiences through their own strengths those are all signs that something has gone really awry. Mm-hmm. In a similar fashion, when an organization is very lone ranger about the way they work in their community, that for me is always a gigantic it's not even a red flag. That's like a minion running by with a flashing light on its head. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is that is waving the red cape at the yeah. bottom, basically. And
2: uh, and so in many cases there are community collaboratives and uh, some in some states they're called a continuum of care or a um, an alliance to end homelessness there there are a variety of superstructures that allow people to be in deep conversation both with recipients and with providers and to do things in a planful way so that there's not duplication of effort there's not effort that is unasked for, that there's opportunities for people to see how the different pieces of the puzzle fit together. And so I think actually robust participation in community conversation is a really powerful check against untethered helping, right? Mm -hmm. And especially untethered helping that isn't really helping. That's all about making the person feel good or the organization feel good and doesn't really have um, folks' interests at heart. I think the other sign to look for is that congregations, right, are 501c3s. And most social and human service organizations are 501c3, which is an IRS code for tax exempt. Mm -hmm. And in theory, they are not supposed to do public advocacy that says things like vote for Senate Bill 17, right? Or elect, you know, Susie Smith, governor of the state. But they are supposed to have a role in public education about the common good. And so I think any service organization worth its salt is always going to be dangerously tiptoeing on the line that they're going to public educate the hell out of stuff, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that that they that they are that they are you know calling their they are calling their state legislators, they're calling city government members, they are participating in public conversations, they're talking to the state agencies that deal with the issues that are their specialty, they're always in public conversation with other public servants about what is going on in the community. Um, They're in public conversations with the people receiving services. they are in public conversations with the peers and the other folks that, that bring this, you know, rich life experience to the table. And they're doing it in a way where we want to make sure that people understand like, what are people asking for? What do people truly need and what are some of the most efficient and effective ways to get that done? And who wants to partner together to make it happen? I think when those sorts of circumstances are happening, you start saying to yourself, wait a minute, are these people advocates or are they service providers? If you've ever asked yourself that question, there's a really good chance that they're on the right track.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. So we chose this topic for today because Elijah and Jesus were both very transitory and we're going to hear stories about Elijah and Jesus talking about that today uh, in their lives. But they both intentionally chose that type of life due to their vocations rather than falling into it through financial circumstance, uh, as we've been talking about folks struggling with houselessness and homelessness today. And so there are st- uh, still people who live very similar lives, uh, very transitory not quite fitting our usual definition of homeless, but still moving around constantly, uh, possibly because of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was wondering uh, does that lack of a settled community and constant relationship have long term effects on a person? Is that something you've had experience with as well?
2: Yeah. And, and I, I mean, some of my dearest friends from the street were people who, who very much in that same model, were intentional about living outside sort of the outside of the, the normal expectations of the society around them. And oftentimes we're able to um, express a sort of wisdom and compassion for their environment that I think a lot of people struggle to appreciate. That being said, I've also seen people struggling with the idea once they've made some relationships of going further. Right, uh, there was a fellow uh, by the name of Jim, and he—I have his permission to tell this story about the time when we met him at his campsite, and he said, "Well, that's great to know that there's these things, and I'll never go to them. But thanks for stopping by." And then the next mm-hmm. time we saw him, he said, "When is that breakfast thing again? I'm only going to come once, but I just wanted to know so that I could plan for next week, you know." Uh, mm-hmm, and, sure. and from that to you know coming to breakfast, you know, well, this is this is kind of dumb, but I'm going to eat breakfast, and I'm only going to come once a week. Then he was coming twice a week, then he was coming through, you know. And so sometimes it wasn't that he lacked community or even necessarily the skills for community, but the, there, there was just this barrier of fearfulness about what other people would think about him. You know, will I be received? Sure. Will, I, will I be rejected? Will I be wanted? And as he continued to participate more fully in community, in spite of not making really any... You know, he would be like a housing navigator's worst nightmare, right? <laughs> Making progress a gym on permanent affordable housing is like, forget it. But he came to a church service and learned about tithing for the first time and realized that he didn't have any money at his campsite. So he started collecting wildflowers. And the next week brought a tithe of wildflowers to adorn the altar because he heard, he heard about the concept of this is how, this is one of those ways you can support the community that supports you. And he just went and did it. If only everyone could do that.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah.
2: yeah. Hear it, learn it, do it.
0: Yeah. So speaking of, I feel lots of despair lately. That story is one that actually like reminds me of the hope that is in the world. But I'm curious, particularly for you, and I know you through many avenues, including as a spiritual director and colleague and of all sorts of things. How do you hold on to hope in the midst, in the midst of, like, all of the everything mm. that
2: is a reality right now? Yeah, yeah. I would credit it to a few things. One, I have a fairly consistent spiritual practice, and mm. that just puts me in regular contact with stories where the things that people hoped for but didn't expect— did happen that, that, that there's a way in which I think I read scripture and that I approach, you know, the, the practice of daily prayer that illuminates that for me. Um, second, I'm only able to be a trusted listener because I have my own trusted listeners, Right. And so um, I know that if I'm going to be in a position where I get to hear a lot of very challenging stuff and a lot of really hard stuff, that I have a place that I can go to to talk about my hard stuff. And so that's that's really important. And it gives me hope just in the sense of the relief that I feel when I've been able to work with one of my trusted listeners, that even though I can't know for certain that someone has felt that in working with me, it gives me a, an approximation of, oh, okay, like, I now feel like everything's going to be okay because I got it out and I processed. And uh, hopefully someone else feels the same way too. And then lastly, I garden. And the cool thing about a garden is that it dies every single year without fail, without (laughs) fail. It always, always dies. And then we have some winter to think it over and to readjust where the plants are going to go and which box and which patch of soil to amend the soil to work it. And by the time spring comes, it's time for new life, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we get really hung up in this culture in terms of getting it right once and never getting it wrong. Because on some level, failure, or at least failure to meet the expectations that society has set forth, it's like the only sin that we have left, right? Like you could do pretty much whatever you want, But you better not ever fall into need. Hmm. And so I think what's lovely about building relationship with something that dies and then comes back and requires a lot of care and a lot of interdependence is that it gives me hope that if I can bring the garden back, then, you know, I think that there's opportunities for new life to spring up, even when everything dies. Hmm. Yeah,
0: That's lovely. So our readings for this, whatever day it is, our readings for this episode (laughs) begin with 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 15 through 16, and verses 19 through 21. The prophet Elijah is instructed by God to anoint his successor, Elisha. Elisha follows Elijah after being rebuked for wanting to say goodbye to his parents and feeding the community with 24 of their oxen as an apology. And if you got confused by this text, that's okay, because I did too. And also, (laughs) people pronounce Alicia and Elijah in very different ways. This is my favorite way of being able to hear a difference. Yes. Just as like a standard disclaimer for you all, for our dear listeners. One of the things that I noticed in this that I hadn't noticed before is, so it's within the framework of like raising up, New leaders, right? God is giving Elijah people to appoint to do the things next. And God says that Elisha will be the next prophet. And then Elijah is like, Hey, come be my servant. And I was like, I don't think this means what you think it means. Right, like, but it is like in our world how we structure things, whether it's you know, having interns and are the interns responsible for getting everybody coffee or for actually gaining life experience in and work experience in that thing. But it reminded me of or sometimes both sometimes both. But it reminded me of and I think I think actually Susanna Porter talked about this in our vocation episode when she was talking about her work organizing and having interns and giving them the tools that they needed and the training to actually make it worth it. Because They weren't paying them. But in the book series Legend by Marie Lu, it it raises that question of, is the society training, equipping, teaching to think critically? Or are they creating robots slash servants slash soldiers who just follow unquestioningly like June? And June is one of the two main characters and ends up like is just in like follow orders kind of mode until something breaks that, but I would hope that Elijah would treat Elisha as more than just a servant, but in fact, as an apprentice, perhaps. Who's
1: rather than a butler.
0: Yeah, you know, based on what God said he was gonna do.
2: It's interesting, because when I read this text, I the first thing that popped in my head was like, oh, okay, so Elijah is like a peer supporter, right? Someone who mm. provides um, exemplary formation, and maybe he's not as kind and welcoming to Alicia as, as he could be in this space. But also, <laughs> Elijah's just gone through some, like, really wacky, heavy... <laughs> so there's there's yeah. been death and murder and, and, and bloodthirsty monarchs and, and he was Are so you? tired and sad that he just wanted to sit under a tree and die. And then it's like, oh, now and now this kid. Right. <laughs> but know. at the same time, it's like, okay, fine. You want to see how this works? Come be a prophet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sort yeah, of knowing right. that it's, that it's not, it's not easy and it's not fun.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And maybe calling Alicia a servant gives him the space to like own the prophet title in his time and not just be like, Hey, you, who I just met want to come be a prophet. Oh yeah. prophets always die except for me. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Coolest Uber ride ever.
1: <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know that I would want to get into a car with flaming wheels. That that seems like a bad idea on the whole. But
0: <laughs> uh...
1: unless it was designed that way, which presumably that one was, yeah,
0: I just love fire, so I might do it anyway.
1: Well, I do too, but like. When it's that close to an engine filled with petroleum, that seems like a terrible plan. Uh, For those who may not be familiar, we're referring to Elijah uh, being uh, raised up into heaven by some chariot with flaming wheels. Uh, That is quite the extraordinary vision somewhere in 1 Kings. I don't remember the chapter. Yes. Uh, But it is a very trippy passage. We'll link to it in our episode description. Sure.
0: Yeah. As we dive into the verses in verse... In the first half of verse 16, God's telling Elijah who all is going to be anointed, and so says, "Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel." And this is like a fairly obscure passage, right? Like this is a small part of the story of Elijah and Elisha, and the one that gets kind of skimmed over a fair amount. And so I don't think I've read it since. I don't think I've read it in a while, and since I think the last time that I really paid attention to it, if I ever did, there has been a creation of Jehu's Table with a shout out to Pastor Kelsey, who was on our Reign of Christ the Queen episode to talk about pose and ballroom culture. And she's the pastor of Jehu's Table. And Jehu Jones was the first person of African descent to serve as pastor in an ELCA, which is our collective denomination of Lutherans predecessor body and was financially taken advantage of as would not surprise us but i thought it was really cool that like jehu that connection to jehu's name and the role in the bible as king over israel
1: absolutely Mm -hmm. and then in verse 21 uh, which uh, is super long and so therefore i will read a selection of we read Elisha took the yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He boiled their flesh and gave it to the people and they ate. And so, in the previous incarnation of this podcast, about three years ago, when we heard this passage the last time, I talked about what a crime it was to boil perfectly good beef, because I am not a vegetarian, and this just offended me on a very deep level. But this time, I would like to take a moment to... Like, that is still true, I am not arguing with that. But I would like to point out the enormous amount of time and energy that it would have taken to boil 24 oxen's worth of meat. Eat, instead of like barbecuing it, which would have been so much easier. And, tastier. and Exactly. And so Alicia is basically Rube Goldberging this process. Uh, if no one here has ever built a Rube Goldberg machine, which was oh. uh, totally my favorite high school science class project, a Rube Goldberg machine takes way, way, way more steps, uh, as many steps as possible to do a very simple thing than necessary. Mm -hmm. Uh, You try to add as many steps to the process as you can and make it as ridiculous as possible. And if you have never built a Rube Goldberg machine, uh, it is a very good way to spend an afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Although your living space may be a complete mess afterwards. Uh, And there are lots of fantastic videos on YouTube of uh, watching people... Sure. Of watching people run their Rube Goldberg machines. And sometimes they actually work and sometimes, you know, not so much, but it's building it. That's the fun part. So
0: I was struck by how much food that is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is an enormous amount of food. That must've been a lot of neighbors. And like, even then, how long did it take them to eat it all? Especially since it was boiled and probably tasted (laughs) terrible. Like, oh my goodness. When I was
0: thinking of JM's, example of the pandemic pizza party right like this feels like a pandemic pizza party everything is changing what do we do food for the whole like i don't know how alicia's parents felt about losing all of that income all at once and that's yeah
1: yeah that was like if alicia wanted to make sure he wasn't going to go home again (laughs) that was one way to do it yeah
2: and at the same time I wonder if those neighbors took care of his parents as a result of that mm-hmm. extravagant generosity.
0: Yeah. Yes. I would hope I've so. been I've been thinking about that a lot recently in terms of like giving money when it is needed, especially in the context of community and just trusting that it is going where it is needed and if it yeah. is need, if I need it, it will come to me and if others need it, it will go to them. And Yeah. But that that sort of community. Yeah.
1: That now ancient meme of, you know you're a millennial when your friend group has been passing around the same $20 for the last three years. Yep. (laughs) Our second reading today is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 and verses 13 through 25. Paul instructs us to serve one another out of love from the freedom that Christ has granted us. He describes the fruit of the Spirit as a contrast to the works of the flesh.
0: So oh, one of the themes that I noticed in this was the like binary that Paul does, that's very, that's interpreted a lot today as very anti-body, right? Where the works of the flesh are bad and the fruit of the spirit is good. And thinking a lot about like the mystics, because we recently had Carla Christopher on for to talk about mysticism. And even Orthodox theology that, like, really gets into erotic and physical manifestations of God. Sure. That, like, ignoring deriding the body and its needs is actually not helpful, Paul. That is, in fact, part of why this pandemic is never ending. Because we're just ignoring the needs of our bodies for safety.
1: Sure. And, Emily, that means that this binary is what? A false binary!
0: <laughs> all about the false binaries. Of course. We need that as a t-shirt. speaking of this is this is coming out towards the end of pride month but we have new merch for pride month particularly our pox fobiscum logo and image in rainbow trans pride and ace pride colors so make sure you check that yeah and then in verse 13 we read for you are called to freedom siblings only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence but through love become slaves to one another This is a complicated thing, right? Anytime we talk about slavery, it is going to be complicated because it is complicated for us in a U.S. context, particularly with our history of chattel slavery. And in general, enslaving another human being is problematic. And there were some things built in within Jewish culture to kind of mitigate that. But if we're looking at the freedom part, so I just want to name that, but looking at the freedom part, the freedom for, I think, is a beautiful idea. And it reminded me of the abnegation faction in Divergent because that is like they are literally their core principle is service, right? abnegating for themselves but doing for others
2: there's nothing funnier than going to a Franciscan community gathering and trying to get in line for lunch because it's like completely (laughs) derailed by this crazy like one up game of deferral no please you go first Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no no I insist you go first Mm -hmm. no you go first So, I mean, I think that, I mean, and that's a sort of a silly example, but I think that within the context of community, within a context of of mutual consent, that the idea of being able to render a, a tremendous amount of loving service to someone mm-hmm. can potentially, you know, have, have a positive um, spin on it. So, yeah. you know, that's something I think worth taking into account, provided that, you know, one is keeping up with all the other caveats that you've mentioned. Oh, sure. Yeah.
1: And sometimes, even if you're doing it for a selfish reason, it still winds up working out pretty well. Like, I met my best friend in middle school being kind and altruistic to each other by being at the back of the line for kickball in gym class and kindly offering to each other, Would you like to go before me? You, you can, that would be fine. Because neither of us wanted to play kickball. There you know? go.
0: <laughs> I was thinking about your example, though, Jam, and I was like, I tend to be of the like, Okay, I'll go, partly because inevitably somebody has to go, and partly because. As a vegetarian, I actually have dietary restrictions. And so I'm like, no, I'm going to go because otherwise you might eat all the cheese pizza before I get there. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So there's,
0: There is there is
1: that complexity of spaces.
2: Sometimes love looks like speaking up for your needs.
1: Absolutely. Ooh. And speaking of eating, in verse 15, we read, If, however, you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Uh, I love this verse. I feel like I... I have not noticed this verse before, but it seems like it should be a bigger part of my life, uh, because it acknowledges that the petty crap is going to happen. Like, we are absolutely going to take bites out of each other. That is how the world works. Uh, But basically, it is encouraging us to only gently nibble at each other rather than destroying each (laughs) other entirely. Like, this reminds me of how my cat likes to gnaw at my hand occasionally, not because she's trying to, you know, eat me, but because she likes to remind herself that I'm real and I'm, I'm really here. Or at least that's what I'm telling myself. She can't talk as far as i'm aware uh and so taking at the at the moment i am taking this verse as saying that we should be like bartleby and loki in dogma or be like lumere and cogsworth in beauty and the beast you're aiming for friendly bickering rather than destroying each other uh when when the petty crap happens and that is mostly gonna be okay
0: i definitely saw loki in your notes and i was
1: like not that low <laughs> no, <I'm> not... <laughs> although although that Loki and Thor do have a few moments of mostly friendly bickering before they, you know, try to destroy planets. I was going to
0: say, they really are more trying to destroy each other's <laughs> planets, but yeah.
2: There is something to this idea that, that a successful relationship, whatever it is, whether it's a friendship or a partnership, uh, that being able to fight well and in great love is an yes. important skill. That, that if there's no bickering, then there's no vulnerability.
1: And if there is one skill I try to make sure a couple has in premarital counseling, come to think of it, uh, we talk about that right away, being able to fight well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that has been a practice of like,
0: it's hard and it sucks to fight, but to be able to fight well and to argue well and to get into disagreements and learn something from them.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Our gospel reading for this episode is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem and heads towards his crucifixion, while his disciples are still totally off base on how to respond to rejection. On the way, he encounters potential disciples from whom he demands similar determination. So one of the themes in this is just really bad Christianity and like the colonizing (laughs) kind of Christianity. A note to the disciples, don't command fire to come down and consume people. This is Murder not bad. the way. <laughs> In fact, it is pretty textbook like incel right there. Like, oh, they didn't do exactly what you wanted. They didn't welcome you exactly the way that like we think they should. Let's just destroy them all. We have enough of that going on right now. We don't need any more.
2: Yeah. And sometimes that negation or that quick fix doesn't look like, you know, we're going to blow them up with a comet, but it looks like the person who sees somebody begging at the entrance to a strip mall. And instead of helping or just going about their business, feels compelled to roll down their window and yell, get a job or move somewhere cheaper, get off the street. One of the biggest smiles I've ever gotten from someone out on the street was when I noticed that they were asking for alms. And so I began my introduction. I said, you know, I see that you're working and you look pretty Mm -hmm. busy right now. When there's a lull, do you want to chat for a second? And it was just this really cool moment where all of a sudden that person took a much less standoffish approach towards our little team of aimless wanderers.
0: That's yeah. Yeah. I hadn't never thought about that. Like the, the framing of that. I mean, I had like the people that yell things out of their cars, but um, that's yeah. a good, that's a really helpful framing. We have squeegee boys in Baltimore who will squeegee windows and, you pay the money when you're at the stoplight or whatever and occasionally i haven't i don't encounter them a ton because i just like drive in weird hours but there have been times where we're like i have no cash and they now have cash app or venmo but like i i don't have money to give you and then frequently like they will just like draw a little heart on your windshield with the squeegee and it's this like beautiful like The times that I have encountered them have been, like, beautiful community, like, relational things. Um, And they're, like, more obviously working, right? They are providing a service to people in cars, which feels more obvious as working. But to think about all of the folks that I encounter as working, much more helpful. Yeah. And then as we dive into the verses, in verse 60, Jesus says, to this potential disciple who wants to bury their father. Let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And it really just feels right now like we are the dead burying our own dead. Like, we're in a pandemic. Over a million people in this country have died, let alone globally. And we keep burying each other. And then we're, like, the policies that we're creating are continuing that. Like, we are the dead burying are dead when we are funding police instead of people and that sort of thing then i also was like on a much different note wondering how this would work in westworld the show because they're ai and so they die and are killed but are they dead are they alive that is the moment when alive and dead becomes its own false binary
1: yeah
0: random associations.
1: I, I can see it. I was just thinking, I mean, there's physically dead, and then there's also, like, emotionally dead, spiritually dead. And speaking yeah. of the dead bearing the dead during the pandemic, yeah. how many of us you. have, yeah. And then in verse 61, we read, uh, Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And then after that, Jesus yells at the guy for it. But, like, maybe... Following someone, following Jesus in particular, certainly, doesn't always mean also, like, actually following them physically. Mm -hmm. It doesn't always mean stalking them. Like, I've said before, my mother loves to say that stalking someone is not socially acceptable behavior, and... Jesus is already traveling with a dozen guys. Like he does not need a bigger group of people to organize logistics for. He is he is full. <laughs> I'm guessing. So, dude, you can go live your life and you can still follow Jesus. Like you don't have to go say farewell to people and then leave them forever. You can also just go home and follow Jesus in your daily life. Mm-hmm. And this made me think of Zuko from Avatar: The Last Airbender. I will try to straddle the line of spoilers and say that partway through. The- the series. He goes through... I already saw it all,
0: if you're not... spoiling oh,
1: Well, that's great, but I was also thinking of our listeners. Cool. Uh, it, it is a wonderful series. Zuko does go through a major transformation uh, partway through the series, uh, and... Uh, Once he goes through this transformation and becomes a very different person, he doesn't immediately insist on traveling with the gang, uh, that is Aang and his friends. He has other stuff to do first, and also he doesn't really feel like it's his place to get to demand that of anyone. Uh, In fact, they kind of have to talk him into it in the end. And maybe if a few more people took that position with Jesus, Jesus wouldn't have spent quite so much time yelling at people. (laughs) Or maybe those scenes wouldn't have been quite so memorable. I don't know.
0: I was just like impressed with your spelling of gang and wondering if it was intentional to have two. Oh no, as that's intentional. Gang.
1: Yes, that's that's how fandom spells uh, spells it because it's the ang gang and that's very quickly got shortened to gang with two a's. Yeah. And now for our newest segment, let's make a Muppets musical where we talk about our readings and uh, we ask ourselves how could we possibly make this better with Muppets. <laughs> Which, like, the answer is always, always you can make things better with puppets. That is an obvious question. Which is question. why it's not,
0: can we? Just
1: how can we? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and uh, personally speaking, uh, you know, I find as we keep doing this, I never manage to think about this in advance. I always have to come up with it on the fly. And yet it still winds up being a wonderful conversation. I was looking at our reading uh, from First Kings and... Uh, of inevitably, we wound up talking about Elijah being raised up to heaven in the chariot with the flaming wheels. And my initial question was, I think that's the defining situation for Elijah. If you're going to cast Elijah as a Muppet, you need a Muppet who can pull off that scene, right? And I'm thinking Dr. Teeth from the Electric Mayhem Band. Hmm. I could totally see him like jumping, not not just stepping politely, but jumping into the chariot with the flaming wheels and uh very excitedly going on up to heaven in it. And that would be fabulous. I was
0: I was totally imagin when you first talked about it, I was like, imagining Miss Piggy freaking out in the chariot with the fiery wheels and
1: like what is that? Oh goodness. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think she'd enjoy that as much. Um, and then, of course, uh, if we're going to have someone, you know, chop up 24 oxen and, and do something bizarre with them, I think the Swedish chef has to be there. I don't know that uh, uh, Alicia has to be played by the Swedish chef, but, like, clearly he would need a sous chef, right? So the, the Swedish chef can help out.
2: I, I was almost envisioning uh, either Scooter or Elmo as Alicia in this situation because both of them sort of embody this sort of, like, helpful sidekick character right and they want to do the the right thing thing. but they also don't always know what the right thing is to do and so there's something about this whole awkwardness of like okay now i'm wearing this weird coat okay goodbye family oh wait no oh now the uh, there goes the oxen oh no (laughs) i guess we'll have to boil them all (laughs) i love that
0: that is fantastic. I love that image.
1: Yes. And we were just saying that we needed to cast Elmo more often because we have not been paying enough attention
0: to it's Elmo. It's true. It's true. And I don't know that we've ever cast Scooter. No. no. So, I don't think so, a great addition.
2: Everyone always forgets the stage manager, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Poor guy. <God. laughs> to be fair, they're always... I'm crazy. excited to see what listeners come up with, though, because this is one that we... So this came from a Twitter conversation with Rabbi Danya Rutenberg. And so we don't always tag her, but we occasionally tag her, particularly if there's Hebrew scripture stories. And so I would be curious to see who, who, also who's human in any of this.
1: Yeah, I have no idea. Like maybe there's some random person who is there and trying to suggest to the Swedish chef, could we barbecue some of this? Because that would be pretty good. Or
0: like Alicia's mom.
1: Yes.
2: Yeah, yes. yeah.
1: But that, that's that's a lot of dead oxen. Why are all of these oxen dead?
0: <laughs> so JM, any other thoughts on life, the universe, and everything?
2: Two things. Number one, if you come across an organization and they say that they're trauma informed, but they only seem to be trying to treat their recipients that way and not their staff, they are not a trauma informed organization. Honor. Number two, please be gentle with yourselves and with each other. We really need it right now.
0: That is a great PSA for all of us.
1: Yeah, Actually, that could be a deep dive. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much for joining us, J.M. We are so glad to have uh, had you with us to talk about all this. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And thank you to our listeners to- for joining us as well. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdy connections to the scripture readings for the fourth Sunday after Pentecost with our special guest, Alejandro Morguilla-Artiz. This podcast has been produced by us. Kay Roloff, and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
0: Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes, including this one, and interviews, live Q&As, and more, support us on Patreon at patreon.com nerdsatchurch nerds at church. It's certainly cheaper than a month of rent for you. Or anyone.
1: Or a day of rent at this one. Also record. true. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Pox Fobusca. Fobusca. Fobusca.